1: Next time.
0: Hello, welcome on today's episode of Partially Excited, we got Peter Duke. Good afternoon. <laughs> yeah, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great, thank you. A lovely day, sun shining, and sure it's great today to be about, up and about. Peter, where are you from? I am originally from Belfast. Uh, I now live in a place called Loch Gall, which is in County Armagh, although I'm on lockdown here in Birmingham at the moment. And
0: give us a little scoop or description about what it was like to grow up in, in Belfast.
1: I was born in 1958 and I lived in my parents and my grandparents ran a shop on a place called the Strandmillis Road in Belfast. and It was a confectioner's shop, so we are tobacconists and confectioners and, and we were lucky to live above it as well. So a, quite a large house on the Strandmillis Road and I was brought up there. So access to sweets, which probably wasn't a good thing, but still very enjoyable as a youngster to be able to take a handful of sweets and fit them into your blazer pocket as you headed off to school. I grew up there and i suppose uh, right through the troubles i would have been a teenager so the troubles really started in 1969 when i would have been nine so that wasn't an easy start but you you lived with it because there was nothing else you can do a bit like the coronavirus in a way that you've lived with it because you've no choice.
0: Yeah, and it must have been cool to have your parents have a sweet shop.
1: It was, yes. That, 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 that was fun. Uh, we sold many sorts of sweets and, and cigarettes. And going back, I can remember some of the great names that they had back in those days for cigarettes, like a brand called Capstan and Navy Blue, Park Drive, John Player Special. In those days, they would have been pretty strong cigarettes, you know, Certainly wouldn't have been good for your health back then. But yes, we did a variety of ice cream, uh, lemonades, confection, no newspapers or anything like that. So yes, that was an interesting start. And did you give a hand around
0: the shop after school or in the summertime?
1: We did, although not as much as we got, as, as we were young enough uh, in primary school, we wouldn't have. But certainly as we got older into into larger school, we did. As we got up in age, maybe nine, 10, 11, we would have helped out stocking shelves and, and doing bits and pieces. My father, he was a, a school teacher at the time as well. And I really don't know how he managed it because he would have gone to school in the mornings uh, opened the shop first then gone to school did his day's work then come home from that work again in the shop in the evenings do homeworks and then on top of that he did an economics degree at Queen's University as a, a senior uh, student uh, which was incredible and he got an honours degree in that as well so where he got the time to do it all I have no idea
0: It sounds like he was a guy who wanted the thirst of knowledge and progress and yes I, I'm kind of the question yourself how did you run a Tweet shop at the same time, which is quite amazing to be doing all that stuff as well.
1: It was amazing. Of course, my mum helped greatly. and um, She helped bring us up and we did have a housekeeper at the time who, who really was a shop assistant, but also helped in the house during the day, which allowed to feed my mum up a bit. But yes, it was really hard graft for my dad to do that at night school and as I say, to come out. And, and the pleasure for me was as a young lad, I was able to go to his graduation ceremony at Queen's University, which was a great day. I was about, I suppose I was still at primary school when he did that, but a great achievement for him.
0: Did your dad teach in the same school that you ended up in, or did you both, or in different schools? He
1: did. He started off as, as, as schooling in a, in a Belfast school, but he then progressed to a school called inchmarlow which is the proprietary school for a, a large school in Belfast called Belfast Inst, or the Royal Belfast Academical Institution. And my dad taught in the primary end, and then we did uh, go to the same primary school. But I only ever got him on the odd occasion, when maybe one one of the teachers took ill, but I wasn't put into his class directly. I think that they'd do his best to keep us apart. And my brother, he went, to, went there as well.
0: That would be an interesting class, father and son teaching one another. That'd be, that'd be very interesting.
1: <laughs> I don't know about teaching one another. <laughs> I think most teachers struggle to teach me at school. <laughs> I wasn't the, the sort of person who applied himself greatly at school. I find it's easier to apply myself now as I get older, but uh, I didn't see the point in school. And sadly, I suppose that can be true of many children. They just don't see the benefit of it while they're there, and that's when they need it.
0: In growing up from primary school to secondary school to, to university as well as, as home, did you find any that influenced you in, in how Peter kind of sculpted to become Peter in some way?
1: Oh, good question. It's hard to know. I think everything around me sculpted me in a way. Uh, a lot of people say that you learn a great deal from school but I actually think I learned more from my parents and my grandparents and people around me and, and, and friends of my parents. Um, certainly my discipline, my politeness, if you want to call it that, would have been, I would have gained that from my mum, my dad, my grandmother, It was a big influence. Uh, and more people like that than at school, I think school. Certainly the discipline I would have got from my parents and I think it's there's this famous saying that it take in Indian terms it takes a village to bring up a child and I think that's very true even today that that, that it's your surroundings, it's people you identify with that really brings you up.
0: And how did your family influence you uh, in yourself Peter?
1: I, th- I think by watching them and, and by doing as they said, you know my father was, he wasn't a disciplinarian anyway, but he would be very disappointed would be the, the word. We'd be disappointed if I had done something wrong. And I always remember, and to this day, I would be disappointed if, if somebody was disappointed in me. And I think that's probably where I get most of my discipline from. And my I hope my politeness and I hope I treat people with respect. And that would have been gauged from seeing my parents do the same, you know, especially in the shop. Um, my father would have always treated customers with respect because at the end of the day if he didn't they could easily go somewhere else uh, but with politeness and, and firmness he, he wouldn't have been a walkover in any way nor my mother but but they would have been polite, helpful and I, th- I think basically watching people surround me and, and learning from them taught me to be much the same as they as, hopefully that sort of answers the question
0: Yeah and it, it's interesting how you just describe politeness, respect they're, they're the fundamentals of how society works, but yet we learn them from our parents at the same time.
1: Totally. And sadly, I think there's a great deal of lack of respect maybe nowadays, and it might be from the fact that technology has a huge factor in the way we grow up and the way we treat each other. Uh, like For instance, I automatically, if I'm walking down a street with a with a female friend or whatever, I'll always walk to the outside. I'll always hold the door open. If I'm on a bus or transport and there's an elderly person without a seat, I'll always get up to give them a seat. Even today, I get strange looks when I do that. And it's just second nature to me. It has it's, it's, it's always been that way. And Again, somebody comes into a room where I'm in uh, with a group of people, I'll stand up to treat them and to welcome them things that are second nature to me but I, I don't see that as being maybe second nature in people today which is a sad thing because I think it's important to still have that treat people with respect
0: it is if you treat people with respect they respect you back it's simple science but I, I do agree I think technology has kind of laid back everyone in how they respect one another
1: Yes, yeah, I remember, funny, just talking about technology, I remember having a a conversation with a friend of mine many years ago when phones first came out, and she she would be a journalist in in Northern Ireland and still is today, and we were talking about the fact that texting, I felt, was going to destroy the art of writing, because with so many people texting to each other, there's no commas needed, there's no punctuation marks required, and I said, you know, and her attitude was, no, it's going to open the field of so many more people wanting to converse with each other, and I said but how are we going to know how are they going to write a letter to somebody with punctuation correctly put and I think that's the you know technology is so important to us and the advances of it is incredible and it's going to get even quicker as as life moves on but still part of the old things you know if you're going to write a book how on earth are you going to put punctuation if you don't know if you're not taught punctuation at school and nowadays they don't seem to be so there are certain things which are moving quickly and are good and there are certain things maybe the old ways and some of that maybe is the respect for each other and, and opening that door for someone and, and just show, I think it's nice to show a lady particular respect and and some women today don't understand what that is even.
0: I, I totally agree I was on a call there this morning with somebody and we were chatting about something in this equation came that I was kind of told at the weekend it was fundamentals plus consistency plus relaxed focus equals progress and I think in society that's the way it is.
1: Yes I, I can see that in anything um, being relaxed about where you want to go and what you want to do. If, if you're hit up and if you're tight it's like anything you know from yourself from sport especially if you're anyway pensed up tight whatever you can't roll. you can't relax rowing is all about relaxing going with the flow and momentum and, and being together and I think that's very much that equation sort of come, puts that in the fact that knowing where you want to go being relaxed about it you'll probably achieve it so much more quicker and um, because you're relaxed as long as you know what your goal is and again going back to your rowing days you'd have come across that because you knew the goal was to get across the line quicker than the team beside you even if that was only the smallest inch um, and you had to get together and you had to relax to do that so yes I would totally agree that that uh, expression gets you to where you want to go
0: and Peter, you're, did you go to university?
1: No, I, I didn't, Well, I'm still at university as I said. I, I talked to somebody recently and I, I said I've left school at O levels and went into the University of Life and I'm still studying. And I eventually, I imagine I will, will um, graduate on the day I pass this mortal coil. And as I've always said, it'll be up to people who come after me to decide whether I was graduated with full honours or just, just got by. So that's what I'm doing at the moment. I'm still going Going through my university education because every day I learn something from people like yourself and, and other people I meet on my way.
0: I like that, the University of Life, what has it taught you so far?
1: I think it's taught me to be open, as I say, be polite, be thankful for what you have, be grateful and um, realize that you're not going to get it all, be open to um, opportunities. How uh, do we talk on an outstanding network that you know that we're all involved in and my topic of that conversation was be open to opportunities because you don't really know what doors they'll open. And My attitude has always been to say yes to something and then maybe find out how to do it later. And that certainly has opened doors for me in many directions. But I think what I've learned is to keep grasping for, for things, keep moving forward and trying to achieve something different every day. Be open to opportunity. Yeah, open those doors that come your way. And the excitement of knowing where that's going to take you is a real buzz. And it could open another door you never imagined.
0: It sounds like it took you a long time to learn the open door of opportunities. When did you learn it?
1: I have always had it, to be honest, because having left school probably at an early age, I I took the opportunities. My my very first job was in an architect's office because... My dream was always to be an architect because I thought there'd be nothing nicer than to have designed and built a building which will be a monument, if you like, to yourself. Although they get knocked down now and again, but some of the greatest monuments that we have today have been built by some of the greatest architects. And that's a nice thing to leave behind. So I started off in a drawing office as an assistant. But I think my salary back then was, I was back. That would have been 75 maybe, a bit earlier. And that would have been about 10 pounds a week. And I started off as an assistant there, uh, doing drawings, doing calculations, working out, um, you know, checking the drawings were accurate, and, and things like that. So, and we worked on some nice buildings in Belfast. There was one particular one I remember it was called the Old Majestic Cinema, which was on the Lisburn Road in Belfast. And it was an old old cinema, and it was bought over by a furniture company, and they wanted to transform it into a two tier building for for a showroom. So the ground floor was no problem, but the upstairs we had to cantilever the balcony right across so it took a lot of steel and stuff to do that but I remember doing the helping out in the drawings of that so shortly after that I moved because it was just going to take so long and so many years of hard work to become an architect in fact it's one of the longest degrees you can do at university I think seven years it's worse worse than medicine nearly and I thought as a drawing office assistant it was just going to take too long so I then diversified into car sales which was a bit of a different leap totally never imagined to be a salesman and again, the salary was doubled, which was even more of an incentive to look along those lines. So that was another door that opened to me, if you like, at an early age. I saw the, the ad in the paper. As I say, the incentive of twenty pounds a week was doubled, and also the opportunity of selling uh, the car. The manufacturer I worked for then was a, a large manufacturer in Belfast, and they sold Porsche, BMW, Ferrari, Volkswagen, Audi. So again, um, very nice to work with those sort of cars. So that was an opportunity that came away So I think. For From a very early age, I've looked at the doors and the the directions and and taken them when I can. Haven't always worked out, maybe open that door which does close in your face, but as long as you leave the door open behind you, you can always go back out through it and take another avenue.
0: It sounds like you had a passion for architect. Why didn't you continue? I know it's the, the length of doing it, but. What is the reason of, of not continuing it?
1: I just felt it was going to take too long. I probably didn't see the opportunity opening ahead of me, whereas the sales opportunity opened more doors. I think that's maybe why, going looking back on it. But in saying that, uh, I did achieve, if you like, in a way what I wanted to because about 10 years ago my wife and I looked at building a house and we bought a plot of land and luckily enough because of what i learned back then that was and that was many years ago as an architect's assistant but i was able to do the drawings myself So I did all the scale drawings for the house. I I designed it, I put it together, and I sent the final drawings off to an architect just to counter-stamp them and make sure my calculations... I couldn't do the calculations for the roof. I just didn't do that. But all the other calculations I did worked out fine, and I ended up building the house. So I suppose in a long... Just because I didn't become an architect, what I learned back then allowed me to design and ultimately, I suppose, build my own house. So I suppose, in a way, I did achieve what all those years ago I set out to. Okay. Why selling cars? Because that door opened. It's as simple as that. The ad came in. When you see the Porsches, I, I think that was when I was about eighteen. So when you see Porsche cars driving around the country, and and this this was the top company in them, a company called Isaac Agnew. Back in the day, they're still going. And uh, I joined them, and I, I must say it gave me great pleasure because there were several teachers at school. Sort of uh, would say, "Oh, Duke, you will not amount to very much, you know, because you haven't applied yourself and you haven't." Done and this and uh, I had great pleasure when I was able to drive past some of those teachers in a Porsche now it wasn't mine of course but they didn't know that and uh, the look on their face when I turned it to horn and waved uh, gave me a great deal of pleasure shall <laughs> we say uh, and it just simply that, that door opened to that opportunity and I took it and, and enjoyed my time immensely uh, for the time that I was there I think I was about five years and all I was stayed there and moved up to sales and BMW and Ferrari which was very nice and very enjoyable.
0: In, in selling cars, what was your favourite car?
1: Oh, I think that my favourite to, to, to this day uh, is a Porsche. Yeah, and I have one. Now, it's a very old one. It's a second-hand one, but uh, it's not worth a lot of money. But uh, it gives me great pleasure to drive and, and enjoy it. And I'm just waiting to get back to back home to Northern Ireland to when I can get it out in this... Especially as all oh, this amazing weather we have at the moment, which is extremely unusual. Uh, I can't wait to get out in it and take the, the soft top down and enjoy it.
0: Is it a Carrera or a 911? What kind of Porsche is it? It's
1: a Porsche Boxster. It's a Porsche Boxster. So... Uh, Yeah, quite a few. Unfortunately, my brother passed away a couple of years ago uh, through an accident. He had the Porsche and uh, I decided I was going to keep it, fix it up and and just keep it as a memory to him and enjoy driving it. So my sister and I are both insured for it. I I put her on it so she can have fun from it as well. And we're both going to have great fun taking that on trips and, and maybe the old picnic.
0: In going up to sales and BMW and Ferrari, what did you learn? First of all, there are big brands to be selling, and second of all, you must have had pride of kind of climbing up the ladder of, of saying, hey, I can sell BMWs and Ferraris.
1: Well, I, I did, yes. I, I started off in, I, in, the, in those days, as as they term, a sprog, and that's basically uh, cleaning cars, de-waxing them because all the cars come with wax on them when they're brand new to protect them from scratches and dents on the way over. So uh, the job was to de-wax that, clean them, have them ready for the showroom and basically be available to deliver cars. So, yeah, I I delivered cars as well. And one of the great trips I had way back then was to to go to Reading, which was where Porsche had their sort of head office, and collect a Porsche Carrera and drive it all the way back to Northern Ireland because a customer wanted it fairly quickly. And we did that back then because transport, it was easier to fly on a plane, jump on a plane, fly to London and, and pick the car up and then bring it back by the ferry for the next day. And, and the customer would have had it a couple of days later. So that, that was great fun. But then moving into sales was also was great fun as well. And I, I certainly enjoyed dealing in prestige cars because it was a nice end of the market. You were talking with nice people, yeah, it was great fun. But but everybody's the same at the end of the day. You know, a BMW brand new is the same as somebody buying their first Ford Fiesta. It's all new. It's exciting. So it has the same thrill for each person. It's just a different price tag at the end of it. And I got great fun out of selling the smaller range BMW, from BMWs down to Volkswagen Polos to people because it, it was a great buzz finding the car they wanted and seeing them go away happy in whatever car it was. What was your biggest
0: sale of cars you ever sold?
1: Uh, My biggest car would have been a Ferrari. It wasn't a soft top, it was like a Target top Ferrari. GT, I can't remember. But it was a really nice Ferrari and a red one. And I sold to a guy who was uh, a real character himself. I won't say his name in case some people would know him, but he owned a a club owner, shall we say, Uh, and he's now an evangelist touring America, I believe. (laughs) I don't know why he ended up in that business. Certainly, the the two don't seem to mix. No. But uh, he was a real character, and and he bought a Ferrari off me. And back then, my commission was £113. And even today, that would be quite good, but back then, that was a lot of money.
0: What made you move on from selling cars?
1: Again, a a new opportunity. I moved into several things. I, I think I've always had itchy feet uh, and always looking for something something different. So it, it took another wee while before I really found anything that I wanted to do. I think I was always looking towards self-employment uh, somewhere because I would always come up against bosses, shall we say, that I didn't see eye to eye to. Uh, and one of the reasons I left uh, Ag News was that I came across a gentleman who I just couldn't work with. Uh, he was a really good salesman. But he, he should never maybe been put into management. He just didn't know how to, to manage staff. And, and we came to loggerheads, and I suppose I had to move on because uh, he wasn't going to be moved on. So uh, it made more sense to me to do that. So I had another couple of jobs in car sales, which, again, uh, just didn't work out as well as previously. So I then moved into designing kitchens, uh, which was probably going back a wee bit to my my days of being a draftsman I always was quite good at drawing so this kitchen company was a company called Pog and Paul, which were really really expensive German kitchens and in those days we had to do all the drawings by hand there was no CAD systems, which they have on computers now, where you just put the dimensions in and up comes a drawing. We had to do the dimension. I remember maybe doing three or four different drawings for one kitchen seal because maybe the the client wanted to say, "Oh, what would that look from the window? And what would that look from the doorway? And what would look that from the the dining room doorway?" So these all we had to show those those aspects all by hand. So that that meant a lot of time doing these hand drawings, but they were nice and they were all three D drawings to sort of show uh, how the perspective would look. So that was fun to do. And uh, I remember the most expensive kitchen I sold there. And this would have been back in 1983, 84. uh, was for a gentleman whose house backed onto Royal Portrush Golf Club. And a, a wealthy gentleman, his kitchen back then was twenty six thousand pounds. So a real nice kitchen to have been involved in designing. It was all white. It had everything in it: it had uh, barbecue grills, deep fat fryers, hexagonal dining room furniture. It was beautiful. It really was a nice kitchen, but very expensive. I wouldn't know. I wouldn't like to think what twenty six thousand, the equivalent then, would be now. It would be must be a hundred thousand probably.
0: So did you fit the kitchens well or did you just design them and then bring it to the next team to develop that design into a physical model?
1: No, no. We, our, our company, Pog and Paul, we, we did the design. We had a range of units that we, all the furniture was already there. The system follows quite straightforward. It's based on 60. All kitchens are designed on 60 modules or, or multiples thereof. So you could have 120, 180, and things. that So it moves up. On, it's a bit like Lego. There are boxes, and basically you fit so many boxes into the room that you have, and, and you basically do it around those boxes. Then you have so many different types of door fronts. So the Client would pick the door front they like best. We would design the units. We'd maybe put an, an island in. Maybe a sink unit in the island. And we maybe do two or three different designs and work with the client to see which one they finally liked. Then we we help them pick the worktop. And all this is already supplied from the company Toggenpole. So we knew they maybe had 20 different types of, of uh, worktop. It could be lava rock. It could be marble. It could be simple wood laminate or whatever they choose. And then And that would go along with a similar door or could be a different colored door which they felt worked well with the laptop that they chose and then we put different units in it could be deep fat fryers could be built in if they wanted that or barbecue grill even indoor barbecue grills were available so uh, yeah we worked with the client of the range of appliances and the range of kitchen units we had to facilitate what they finally wanted and we simply came up with the the design that worked for that room and that's basically how it was finished
0: it sounds like the the posh version of Ikea for kitchens in some way.
1: Exactly the same. Ikea and Pogginport are absolutely no different. IKEA do an amazing range of kitchens and twenty-five year guarantee with them. Fantastic! The house we built in Lockall, uh, we have a, an IKEA kitchen in it. And basically, although it's a lot easier, there's no hand drawings to do anymore. You put the dimensions in, and, and all of a sudden, comes up a three D drawing of what your kitchen will look like from about twenty different angles. Whereas back then, we had to do those twenty different angles by hand, so it could take two hours for a drawing. And we're on a drawing board doing that, so that's the difference. You know, nowadays, a push of a button, and you can have, you know, you can. Even even walk into your kitchen virtually now and see what it would look like as you walk around it. Uh, we certainly couldn't do that back then. You just
0: mentioned something very interesting, Peter. You know, IKEA—it's digital. But back in your day, it was just drawing. It was probably you. I hear that you enjoy the drawing, but I say it was a nightmare as well trying to put all these pieces together for a presentation drawing to get to build the template
1: well yes back then it could be because again time management you know you were doing these drawings and there was obviously going to be a cut off time when it wasn't practical to do anymore but yet the client might come in and say oh, what would that and then they would maybe want to change the handles they might want to change the doors you know they might have had a door with a drawer above it and they say well what happens if i put three drawers in there instead of that cupboard how would that look so that meant going back to obviously we did all these drawings on, on type of tracing paper same as architects would do their drawings in the old days on tracing paper so We could go back to the tracing and change the drawer and then take a print of that and show them the print so we weren't always going back to creating new drawings but we were going back time and again to maybe see what a different drawer would look like what a different fascia would look like if they wanted fascia boards across the top of the units whether they want the units all the way to the ceiling or not so there was a quite a quite a few elements which maybe would change over a period of time before the final decision would be made. And of course, that's time consuming, that's eating into the profit of, of selling that kitchen. So there was a cutoff paper when we had to say, look, I'm sorry, you have to make your decision now, I can't really do much more. But it was the 3D drawings were the difficult ones because if they wanted it from a different angle, then that meant having to do a completely new drawing to show the perspective from that angle. Now, we didn't do too many of those because they were time consuming. You know, they had fading points where where, where the kitchen would fade to a point to see the perspective and things like that. But still, it was a, it was a fun element to be able to do that by hand. Nowadays, as I say, you, you simply walk into, virtually into the kitchen, and you can turn around and see, you can probably open the kitchen doors to see what we look at inside. So technology has has moved greatly forward to enhancing the fun of purchasing things like that now. With
0: the imaginary of drawing, I know it's it's a it's not like where you draw a person where it's more imaginative and it's creative. But I would assume that drawing a design for a kitchen is creative as well, and probably time disappears when you start putting a cabinet here, a fridge here, etc. Where it, it must felt freedom as well, but yes, you're confined in the construction to bring an architect for a kitchen as well.
1: Yes, you know, it depends on what your confines were to the room itself, you know, depending on the dimensions of the room, the size of it. There are basically, I suppose there's only about three types of kitchens, really, maybe four. There's a square, that's as simple as that. If you've got a box, uh, you could have a U-shape, because obviously you don't, can't have units around all four walls, because you have doors in some walls. you have windows in most, so you've, you're limited to where you can go there. You have a, an L-shaped kitchen, depending on the small space you have. You have a galley kitchen, where you maybe only have units down one wall, because it's so narrow so your your constraints are quite often by the room size itself then the next one would be what the client visualizes in that room for themselves and whether it can be worked so there, there's a lot of elements go into it but it comes down to quite quite simple modular whether it'll fit Uh, and most most of the time the client wants more than can be fitted into their kitchen Uh, and that's where the plan comes where you have to try and get everything they want into what they think is a huge space when reality says it's only room for two units and they want 20 so uh, yes you're working with a client in harmony hopefully to come up with what's the best solution for that room and back then the freedom of doing those drawings was great whereas now you know you you basically push the button and it's there so i think we had more freedom to design but people nowadays don't know know, because all they've got is camcat as it's called so they don't know the freedom of doing a drawing by hand so therefore they don't lose out on anything maybe it's harder for maybe me to go and lose that freedom and go in and have to do it now using a a computer but I can get to more people I can get more sales because of that so there's benefits in everything Uh, and it's just finding the one that suits you
0: What did you learn in yourself doing these these drawings for the kitchens?
1: I suppose I I learned the freedom of doing the drawings. I had the great fun of working with clients again. I think that comes back... I suppose clients have always come through everything I've done. Clients in the architect's office Working with them, that would have been working with people again uh, and the drawings, working again what they liked. You know, the, the, the Majestic Cinema, working with the clients who owned that to, to figure out how best to get a second floor in for them. Uh, going to the car sales was working with the client there to find them the car of their dreams or at least the, the car that was practical for their family, their needs, whether it be a single person wanting a, a car for work or, or a sports car to, to enjoy a weekends or a family looking for a car. That, that could take them on weekends away or, or be a, a businessman looking for a car to, to show off his business as a success and then moving into the kitchen side of things where, where the client was there looking for the, the kitchen because in most houses, I suppose a kitchen and bathroom is what sells the house. In a lot of cases where if you have a nice kitchen with a nice aspect looking out onto a garden with possible patio doors, then that helps sell the kitchen as does the, as, does the bathroom. So working with clients to enhance their house, I, I suppose the common. And has always been clients and, and my rapport with clients.
0: Is it right that you work better with people than being stuck in an office job with a computer or a, or a typewriter in front of you?
1: Yes, uh, probably 100%. Anybody who knows me would tell you that I'm a people person. I, my biggest smile is when I'm amongst people. I think, whereas my wife would be uh, the polar opposite. Nearly, she she can work far better in a in a quiet space, in a corner, in a forest somewhere. In fact, a couple of years ago, we spent two months in a in a forest not far from a ski resort. I uh, was just lucky enough to have time and, and space to do that and went on holiday where she was more than happy to sit for the two months in that chalet looking out and have the dogs around her whereas I, my time for me was to go to the pub and meet people so yeah I would be very much a people person and enjoy meeting and, and again I suppose it goes back to what we said before about those doors, if I'm not meeting people and talking to people and not getting any doors opening for me whereas if I was in a room and with my computer I don't suppose those doors would be accessible
0: to me. Yeah, I I think that that people provide people, and it sounds like the opportunities and the doors open are the people opening for you. Like the way you open a door for a woman, people are opening doors of opportunities for you to continue that university of life.
1: Very much so, yes, yes. Uh, and if I'm not meeting new people, therefore I'm not meeting new opportunities, uh, and those new doors will, will stop opening. So I suppose I'm continually looking for, and um, I suppose the outstanding network, which you know of and, and some of your listeners know of, has opened more doors for me, i.e., meeting you and having this opportunity to chat to you. So that's been a door that has opened to me if I hadn't reached out and joined the, net, the network. And so when I go in uh, and, and meet people socially, I'm always looking for someone to go and talk to. Somebody new. I probably go if a friend brings me to an event. I probably reach out to the to the strangers in that event more so than uh, the people I know in that event.
0: Did you do performing arts, or do you get involved in performing arts, Peter?
1: I did. Yes, yes. That, that was through and am, amateurs, really. I, I many years ago. I can't even remember how it came up. I think I might have been going with a, a girl at the time who was a member of a group and I joined it. That's what it was, yes. I met a girl, and, and uh, we we're going out with her, and then we joined. She was a member of a group, and I joined it. It was based down near Banbridge, Banbridge Choral Society, and I joined them and enjoyed sort of working in the background of, of again, I suppose going back to my, my drawing days, and I enjoyed coming up with props and different ideas and, and coming up with the ingenuity of thinking, well, oh, how can we make a prop for that? That looks really well from, from the audience point of view. So I helped out backstage, now also enjoyed performing on stage Uh, and that progressed to joining a company called First Act Musical Company and that was a company that was put together by a gentleman called Peter Kennedy and Peter would handpick the people in that uh, group so it, it became not an elite group but it became a group where people really wanted to join. Uh, because most of the people in it were really talented. Uh, Take me out of that scenario there in the word talented, certainly. I filled in the background to help out, which he needed now and again. But I certainly enjoyed it, I learned a great deal from those people. And our initial group was incredible. I remember doing, we did a a run of Greece in the Arts Theatre and it's still to this day, I think is probably a record for an amateur company to do, a run of three weeks. Don't forget that we were working during the day. We were coming in at around six o'clock or thereabouts to put a show on at seven o'clock or maybe half seven. And on a Friday night, we did two shows because this, the, the show was selling out that well that we did a second show. So we did a show, was it 8 o'clock? I think it started maybe 8 o'clock until around 10 o'clock. We then had an hour off back on stage at 11 and did that show straight through until 1 o'clock. Now, that's probably unheard of for an amateur company to do shows like that, but it was brilliant. And again, the doors that opened for me took me on a journey I never imagined it would do.
0: Would you have thought that you would be in performing arts uh, looking back?
1: I, no, I never imagined it. Although, uh, looking back now, my father was a great amateur actor and loved it. He he did a lot of amateur dramatics when he was in his, in his early days, I suppose, of, of possibly studying at Queen's. But he did uh, amateur plays for um, Malone Church, I think. It was way back in the day, and he enjoyed it. So maybe I got that a wee bit from although I prefer musicals. Most of my acting uh, and backstage work would have been done through musicals. And one of the avenues that took me on was meeting a gentleman called Peter Corey. Uh, Peter Corey played the Teen Angel in, in the Greek production we did. And uh, it was a very tongue-in-cheek production. It was great fun. As I say, we, we, we played to huge audiences. But Peter played the Teen Angel and it was very obvious that Peter was a major talent. He went on to do a talent show called Go For It, which was a talent show between UTV and RTE. And I remember at the time I had an an LP from a very well-known singer. Some, Some of your listeners might well have heard of him. They certainly would know of his acting ability if they've ever watched. And Homeland, it's a guy called Mandy Patinkin, has starred in those TV shows. But he also, which maybe isn't known to many of you, is an amazing tenor voice. And what a beautiful singer. So I lent Peter an LP of Mandy Batinkins and there was a particular song I suggest he should listen to on that and that was Somewhere Over the Rainbow. And Peter listened to it, and unbeknownst to me, he got, uh, when he did performed the final of the RTE Go For It uh, competition, he did uh, Mandy Patinkin's version of Over the Rainbow on the programme and subsequently won it, which was a great thing. So I I sort of feel that uh, um, I had some help in that way. (laughs) Not that I had any help in his talent, he already had that, but uh, at least point him in the right direction for a really good version of Somewhere Over the Rainbow. So uh, he won that contest and has uh, moved on to incredible things in his career, Uh, playing the lead, uh, second lead in Les Les Miserables in the West End for about three years and then touring with it throughout the UK and starring opposite another major artist called um, Colin Wilkinson, who's a major star. So uh, that, that opened doors for me because Peter came back from, from touring the West End and wanted to do some shows on his own back home and very kindly reached out to me to see if I would help. And, and I have done and, and I still help on, on occasion to do shows and bits of tours and things that he has done. So I'm very lucky that that's opened doors that have taken me on many different many different phases of my life, which has been brilliant.
0: You said that you felt that you didn't seem talented in this pool of talent, why was that?
1: These guys had amazing singing voices, they were amazing dancers. I, I could get through a dance routine okay, but nothing as quickly as they could pick it up. I suppose my I was pretty good at doing character acting. Uh, I, I was alright at maybe putting makeup on and putting on a character. Singing I wouldn't be great at. Uh, I can hide in the chorus where nobody can hear me. So yeah, uh, these most of these people in First Act Musical Company were very capable of playing lead roles. Uh, it was very obvious that I probably would never play a lead low. although, well, you never know Maybe if were... although I did later on, I, for a very small company I played the lead in, in Fagan and, and again, a door that opened and I took it I thank God there was no reviews written about it or anything like that, uh, as I wouldn't like to think what they would sound like or, or even cringe at the thought of anybody writing a review on that. But yes, at least I can say I have done that, which is, which is something nice to have achieved if nothing else. I,
0: I heard you talk about this this long wire, I don't know if it was a performance or whatever, but you had to extend some long wire across the stage. Tell us about that. Oh,
1: <laughs> yes. That, again, that, that shows the naivety of, uh, I'm going back and saying yes, that when you 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 open a door, it takes you on a route. When Peter came back and asked me to help uh, do the shows with him, I expected to be doing sort of fixing things and and being a gopher, if you like, go that, get this, go get that. But it uh, it transpired into becoming stage manager, tour manager, and just managing every aspect, which was great because I learned so much. But the the fascinating story of that was uh, Peter had employed the services of a very talented director called Hugh Now Hugh Uldridge has worked with people such as Andrew Lloyd Webber, Michael Ball, oh, top end singers and, and stars in the West End. Hugh Woodridge has worked with them all. So Hugh uh, had worked with Peter in the West End, obviously, and name is, on different things. And when Peter wanted to do his first show at the Opera House, he decided that he wanted Hugh to help him direct it, because he hadn't directed anything himself at that time. So Hugh came over, and I was introduced to Hugh Woodridge as Peter's uh, stage manager. So <laughs> I had never been uh, <laughs> never been let, let on that this was going to be my job so I took a gulp and listened and said right I better listen to hear what happen." so part of my job Hugh's job would be to sit in the stalls beside the sound desk and the lighting desk he would have what are called cans which are headphones and he would relate to me curtains would be closed for the start of the show so I would be there Hugh would cue me at the same time he would cue lights because he was sitting beside them so I couldn't see the lighting cues or the sound cues being done that was Hugh's job so Hugh would turn to me and I I would then cue the orchestra and Peter and everything else and the show would start. But unbeknownst to me, I didn't know that I had to stand in the middle of the stage. So next thing, I'm standing side stage with my headphones on, which had about three feet of cable. So next thing, Hugh would cue me. I would run on the center stage and cue the band. But of course, that left me in the middle of the stage, stranded when the curtains opened. So it didn't look very well, but thank goodness this was only a rehearsal. So Hugh said, no, no, closed curtains, no good, no good. So I figured, how on earth am I going to cue all this with my headphones on and only three feet of cable? I need to be in the middle of the stage. And I just couldn't figure this out until one of the stage crew, obviously been in the opera house for many years, tapped me on the shoulder and said, Peter, we can give you an extension for your headphones, which will allow you to stand in the middle of the stage and cue everything. So that was a very quick learning curve and one I never made again. But again, if I hadn't, it's the best way to learn. On your feet, in the middle of it all. I never made that mistake again. And it also taught me, if I wasn't sure about something, to ask. People don't mind you asking, and I can tell you, if I had asked beforehand, I wouldn't have been stuck when those curtains opened with me in the middle of the of the stage. But yes, uh, that was something that, I, that taught me to ask, and I think a lot of us could learn uh, that it, there's no harm in asking. It doesn't cause embarrassment, and in fact, it causes less embarrassment if you ask.
0: Sounds like that was a mistake, but yes, you were able to rectify it and, and fix it.
1: Oh, big big time! Yes, because it was only a rehearsal. It meant that I, and a very kindly, the, the stage hand you, and again, didn't embarrass me, just pulled me to the side, realised that I was new to all this. And again, because I told them, I, I came in and said, look, guys, I'm new to all this. I'm looking for all the help. They, I still go into, and those people still help me to this day, and that would have been back in 1994 or 5, maybe. And to, that, to this day, when I go into the Opera House, they remember me, and I have a great rapport with all those people, simply because I know that if I have a problem, I can go and ask Great lesson,
0: it is a great lesson, and you know, big mistakes bring great lessons, and you probably learned that through all the doors that have opened and closed in your life
1: many, many times. I think, in, you know, you can learn these by going through college and everything, but, but I've been so lucky that I have, I have toured as a tour manager, which I had never done before. So I have again learned on my feet how to do that. And again, there's a great thing I come back to is common sense. And we talked earlier in our conversation about uh, being polite and being helpful to people. I think common sense comes into an awful lot of that, and I, I don't ever remember being taught common sense. I just remember having it and maybe that comes from watching my parents and watching my grandmother and watching my 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 father's friends and learning from them how they did things and that came to me as common sense And I think in all things, the doors that have opened to me and and, uh, the opportunities that have come my way, the common sense of being a tour manager, not knowing what you do, you know, the common sense of knowing that a tour manager's job is to make sure everybody has a hotel room. So when we got to the hotels, my job was to get in first and say, right, how many hotel rooms have we? Oh, we've only got 20. Oh, well, we've got 30 people. Oh, right, we've a problem. Get that sorted. Common sense was find out if people were prepared to double up. If they weren't, I then went to the hotel. Can you get me more rooms? No, we can't. Go back, solve that. So it really was problem-solving, and that, to me, was common sense. It wasn't difficult to be a problem-solver. What made you become a tour director
0: or tour manager?
1: Again, it was just a door that opened. I was working with Peter at one of his Christmas shows and a, and a manager that had worked for Peter had worked with in the past, a guy called Michael Durkin, was up one day seeing his Christmas show and I had worked with Michael on a, on a previous show and we had a great rapport and got on well. And I'd always said to him, look, Michael, if you ever need anybody to help you out, give me a shout. I'm always happy to help. And uh, I happened to mention it again to him at, at the, that Christmas show. And that Christmas show usually runs about a week or so before Christmas. And Michael said, well, you know, Peter, I might have something for you, leave it with me. So I didn't think anything of it, didn't say boo. Next thing, the phone rang about three days later. And this would have been about two days before Christmas. And it was uh, Michael Durkin saying, yeah, Peter, I have a job for you if you're up for it. I said, certainly. I had no idea what the job was, didn't know what it entailed, but I said, yeah, I'm up for it. He says, the only problem is you have to leave on on Boxing Day. Oh, right. Uh, And I had my own wee business um, uh, at the time as well. And I thought, right, what am I going to do here? So I I quickly decided I was going, uh, because it was going to be a a two-month tour of Germany, I think it was then. So I said, yes, not knowing what to do, not knowing how to go about it or anything, but I knew there were people around me who could help. Uh, and so I would said to the wife, would it be okay? She said yes, if it's something you really want to do. So on Boxing Day, I drove down, or got a train to Dublin, a bus to Dublin, and met met all the people for the very first time. The only guy I knew was Michael Durkin. He was there too. Introduced myself to the cast, the crew, and people travelling. And next thing I was tour manager of a, a tour, of an Irish dance tour in Germany. So it took a while to get to know people. Obviously they didn't know me, but uh, they were very helpful. They were kids of around 18 to 22 23 and again like everything else just ask and they're more than happy to help. Met the German crew who were doing the tour. Again open arms to them, say look guys I need your help here and because I did that and was willing to work with them, I used to sit and have my meals with the German crew which other people didn't do. You know it was very much the Irish group and the German group but I was the one who bridged the gap. I went and sat with them and had meals with them and uh, didn't have every meal but I had the odd meal with them, which they really appreciated. Just the common sense thing of, of realizing that I wanted them as a friend, and again, I learned very quickly, I never asked people to do things, I always asked people would they mind helping me with something, and when you do that, that opens that opens a, a discussion rather than say, look, would you take that over there for me, or would you drive that to there, or would you, it was always, look, would you mind giving me a hand, I have this to do, would you mind taking that over there for me? And again, it's how you ask. And if you ask the right way, the job becomes easy. Life becomes easy if you learn how to uh, learn to ask people to come along with you on the journey, as opposed to tell them what you want them to do.
0: That must have been an interesting uh, job, being a tour manager.
1: It was, but it had its problems too. I, I had I had a group of people who um, some of them enjoyed a drink too much. I had to solve that problem. It was difficulty working with adults because most of the musicians were adults. Most of the dancers were were kids, basically 18s, 19 year olds, young young adults. And again, the rules for senior adults would be slightly different. For instance, a simple thing would be that the adults would be allowed to maybe have a drink in their dressing room, but the, but the kids weren't. And we all went on the same tour bus. So a very difficult thing would be for me that if the kids could see adults carrying out a carry-out to take to their dressing room for a a, a quiet drink before they went on stage or afterwards, and the kids weren't allowed to do it, I had to very quietly go and tell the adults, look, I don't mind if you bring drink in your bag or something like that, but you can't overtly let it be seen to the rest of the dancers who, who would be sacked if they were seen carrying drink. And I, I just find that a very difficult thing. I think the rules should have been that per, adults weren't allowed drink either. But um, these things, they, they got a little bit of dispensation because... They were adults, and my attitude was, well, if you go on stage drunk, I'll sack you, but whether it be a musician or not. And that was always a difficult thing, because musicians, most musicians I know, enjoy a drink. And the difficulty was to control that, whereas the kids were not allowed any drink. If they had been caught drinking, they would have been sacked. And I just found that... A difficult fence to walk because it was uh, was unfair. I felt to to the younger members of the band to see that going on when they couldn't. So there was there was difficulties with it as well. It was never, didn't always run smooth. On our days off, some some of them would get drunk and it would be damage done in the hotels. That had to be sorted out the next morning because what you got to remember, we're also ambassadors on these tours. And what you got to remember is when we tour, there are tours to come after us. We may not know who they are. We may not even know of. Them. But, you know, if we mess a hotel up uh, because we think we're having fun or the kids think they're having fun and damage is caused, although it's paid for the next day, that's fine. But the difficulty is, will that hotel allow another tour to come after us? So every tour has to think that they're ambassadors for the future tours that go into that country. And that's, a, again, a difficult line to balance as well, to make sure that the kids can have fun, but they don't destroy the rooms or make a mess that goes beyond what they should be doing. There was a lot of work. It's not straightforward by any means. And it's a difficult job as well, because you're the man. The buck stops with you. The management team have gone back home. You're the manager there, you have to suffer with kids taking ill. Uh, I remember I had a, an issue with a, one of the, the, the kids who'd lost their grandmother, and their grandmother was more like a mother to her. I had a very long dr- drive back to get her to the airport, long train journey with her being very quiet and subdued to make sure she got on a flight safe and sound and got home okay. That was a long, hard day uh, to try and keep her going and get her home. So things like that aren't easy and we had, we had deaths to deal with. We had a, a member whose, whose wife took very ill and he had to be got on a plane immediately. To, to get home as quickly as he could to make sure she was okay. So uh, it wasn't always easy.
0: At that stage, did you did you get itchy feet and wanted to move on again, or did you stay in tour managing for a little bit? No,
1: no. That that the tour management has always been part time. I've always I've been very lucky that to me it was a part time job. Uh, and it's, it's and, and to me, I was an amateur at it, but I know I'm not. I know that the people involved, I know that the guy employed me as as tour manager, saw me as a professional. I know Peter Curry sees me as a professional because anything I go into, I do it professionally. Uh, although I may not see it as that, I probably see myself as amateur compared to other people who have, have lived their life as stage managers and lived their life as tour managers. But I know I do a good job because I will take care I will be I'll take care of people I care for people and I think stage management and tour management is very much that part of it so I'm very lucky that I can come in and out of it when the opportunities arrive I have my own business which I describe myself as a mobile refuse receptacle cleansing operative and that very simply means that I wash people's wheelie bins and uh, I did I took I started out 27 years ago this year is my 27th year doing that I thank goodness I did, because that would have been my first time into really doing something for myself. Up until that point, I'd been in several different jobs. I'd worked for all sorts of things, as I say, kitchen design, insurance for a while, working in a petrol station for a friend of mine, working in a coffee shop for another friend of mine. And and then I, I just said to myself, I really need to work for myself. So... I I think back then I came up with the idea that, I really can't remember how I came up with the idea for bin washing. I think it was along the lines of that, you know, people get their cars washed, people get their windows washed, people have gardeners, people have housekeepers, people even have people come to their house to wash their cars at their own homes. I thought I didn't see anybody washing wheelie bins and the, and the crazy thing is wheelie bins get very dirty very quickly. So I, I looked at it and in those days my parents I don't think were too happy because having given me a really good grammar school education I think they felt that that was a wee bit beneath me to go cleaning people's wheelie bins. So uh, I explained this idea to my aunt who was living in the south of England and she very quickly said oh yes they knew somebody who did it. So that made my mum begin to change tune a wee bit when they heard my aunt knew somebody who, who got it done. So uh, I reached out to that chap. I found out who he was, who cleaned the bin. He lived in, in Staffordshire. And so I reached out to him, got his number, got his contact details. And I, I came over here and spent a week with him, uh, seeing how he operated, how he worked, how he did it. And then I came back home and decided that I was going to do that. So I set up on my own uh, washing people's wheelie bins. And it took a wee while to start. But thankfully now uh, I have a. It's not uh, a big business, but it very much keeps me going. And because it's mine, and I've had my customers for most of those twenty-seven years, I have about five six hundred customers. And as long as I tell them what I'm doing, they they allow me to go on my trips. They allow me to go on my tours for three months because I tell them. I, I give them a wee note to say yes. I'm heading off on my trip I'm heading off on my next tour do you mind and as long as they know what's happening they've been very very much supportive of me and I still have them and I think again that's because I'm a people person Uh, if you ask any of them who washes their wheelie bin they'll tell you it's Peter they couldn't tell you that my name's Green Clean or anything like that they'd have no idea of any of that because I've always signed everything and introduced myself as Peter so uh, again that goes back to to everything I do seems to be people orientated and again because I've I've had this great opportunity of having my own business it allows me to open all those other doors that have opened so many other doors for me in, in the tour management you know, I've been lucky to be on tours with uh, Paddy Kiltey, the the stand-up comedian. I've worked with him for a two-week, three-week tour of Ireland. Uh, off and on, up around the the universities there. I've worked with Peter on tours. I've worked on um, the Hole in the Wall Gang, which is a a group of uh, comedians up in Belfast. They have their own radio show and they tour as well. I I did tour manager for them, which I'd never done before. And that was learning how to to write the Bible, as it's called, which is basically a script, which they give and, and they work through the script. And anything that changes on the script has to be made on that script if they come in from a different door if they they come in a different way if they change a line somewhere I have to put that the stage manager's job is to edit that on the script the lighting changes made the script and the stage manager has to write all those and that becomes what is known as the bible so much so that if I wasn't able to do stage managing on that occasion that somebody else comes in he can read my bible and actually run the show from that bible so I had to learn how to do that and I've done that so, so again, it's just brilliant. I have been so lucky and I count myself to be very lucky to have had all these opportunities and to meet so many amazing people. And I'm still looking for the next one.
0: What fascinating about cleaning people's bins?
1: I don't think fascinating was it, really. I think it was a a means to earn an income. And uh, I just saw that opportunity. And 27 years ago, I I probably would be about the only one actually doing that back then. So it was quite strange because I I remember back then going to what is called Ledu back in those days, which would be a government grant-based system where you could go and maybe get a £1,000 to help you achieve your, your small startup business. So I went, but you had to go on a week's course. And I remember going on that course and, one, and the instructor in the course said part of the course was to write down your um, your goals and what you wanted to do. And you had to write down your competitors and you had to write down how your competitors were doing it and what their pricing structure was and all. And the crazy thing was I had no competitors. That was the beauty. Of it. And, the, and the instructor couldn't really understand this. And I said, well, hang on. There is nobody doing what I want to do. There's nobody washing bins. There's nobody cleaning bins. There's nobody can see doing it so there is no price structure there is no competition it's an open field for me so that was quite nice and i still i chuckle at that but having started the business well really at those days there was no competitors but it was just along the lines of i was working in the petrol station and i was getting i think it was the minimum wage an hour was about five pounds an hour And I suddenly realised that if I went out and washed three people's bins and I charged £2 a bin, very quickly I was going to earn £6 an hour. I thought, boy, I, if I earned three bins, I could actually go home for the rest of that hour, because it wouldn't take very long. And then I thought, well, if I do four or five or six bins an hour, what does it do? And my hourly rate has really shot up. So that is, that's basically what turned me on to really washing people's wheelie bins. And that, as the numbers increased, the income increased, and as I say, it gave me the freedom. And I think that entrepreneurs see that more and employed people do, but they see their income as giving them the freedom to do really what they want in life and it has given me the freedom to, I never imagined I would be doing stage work or anything like that, it all happened through my amateur side, never really seeing that as a professional end to anything. But having, I washed the bins all the way through my amateur days. And simply because I did that, it really gave me the opportunity when those doors did open and and that opportunity came along to do the professional side of of the theatre business, that having the bins uh, freed me up to do that. If I was working for somebody, I probably never would have been able to take the opportunity to go down the theatre route and do those things, so I would have missed that immensely. Of course, I would never have known it because I probably I would have had to say no. So having my bin business has created so much opportunity in other directions, which has been amazing. It really wasn't for the want of cleaning bins, although I get great pleasure in doing that and knowing that when the customers come to me and rave about my service and say to me, Peter, we're just delighted to have you back washing bins. It's lovely to see you. It's lovely to have our bins clean and smelling well. So again, is is the pleasure I get from from the client connection? So I suppose my thread through all the things I've done is that rapport with my clients.
0: Does it take long to clean a person's bin?
1: No. Uh, once that once you have them done, it takes a very short space of time, and it, it depends on the bin. You know, I've had bins which take me could take me twenty minutes to clean, and maybe clear out four or five carrier bags of guns, shall we say. And once I've done that, then to do that bin on a regular basis every... I, I, my, my my cycle for washing bins is every four weeks. So I wash your bin today, and then four weeks' time, I'll be back. It, it could take me 30 seconds to do that bin again, depending on how mucky it is. But recently, for the last number of years, I've been lining customers' bins with a bin liner, but I haven't been able to find proper biodegradable. I've been able to find degradable bags, But the trouble with degradable bags is they do degrade, but they only become small plastic particulates in in the environment, which is what I don't want. Real, true biodegradable ones are made of starch, but they're not cost-effective. So I think I'm going to go back to the old ways of not putting any bin liners because it's not good for the environment. So I'm I'm going to go back to, when I do go back from this COVID thing, I'm going to go back and advise my clients that they won't be getting uh, bin liners at all because it's not good for the environment. So, yes, when they were bin-lined, it really made the job very quick. Pulled the bin-liner, wiped the bin, popped a new one back in, and it took very, very short space of time. But it's a, it's a, it's a, great fun way of earning, earning a living. I must say. I don't know why more people don't look at it because it's very cost effective.
0: I think because it's such a stinky job, and that's that's why people don't want to do it. But do you find this like, did the smell catch in your clothes? And you get does the smell drive you, drive you crazy in in cleaning people's bins?
1: Not in the slightest, no. No, I, I'm just so used to it now over 27 years. I think I think it's like anything you do. Um, I remember friends of mine used to live beside a, a railway and I would go and visit and the train would thunder blast and the win- windows would shake and the, and the picture on the wall would shake and I would shout, what's that? And they would sort of say, well, what do you mean, what's that? Because they wouldn't notice it. It, it's just become part of their psyche and again people used to live down by the li- river Lagan in Belfast which used to be a terrible smell from that but they never noticed it because it was just part of their upbringing and again for me it's much the same is that I don't notice the, the horrible, unless it's a real unique one which now and again you get but uh, you just get used, to it. it's part of the job, it's part of what you do and when you come home you just have yourself a good clean shower uh, and you're, you're back to normal again so it's like like anybody who does a job like, like a mechanic, Mechanic whose hands are filthy and like a, maybe the coal miners back in the day was was the job you did, and you get used to it and it just becomes uh, yeah you don't notice it very much at all.
0: I heard you mentioned about Van Morrison and Bill Clinton. Tell us about that.
1: Oh, that story. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a nice. That that again goes back to a door opening for me. I worked with Peter on a show and I met a gentleman from Northern Ireland called John Anderson and John Anderson would be known in the in the entertainment world and he had his own radio show on Radio Ulster and he would, uh, School Choir of the Year would be one thing he started off and has been very successful he's also a very successful writer of music and everything and one of the shows he did was on Eagle's Wing which was a, a show Peter did and we did and had, had misfortune in different things but a really good show and some days I hope we'll see it again come but meeting John Anderson he had his own band which was a, I suppose not a show band but a a concert band and, and and would be known as a John Anderson band and he had these music stands and they were an absolute pain in the in the backside for want of a better term because they didn't fold flat they wouldn't fold in any way uh, and he used them all the time and they were made of, of plywood but and basically I got the job of taking them down to the show that was going to go on uh, for the Bill Clinton visit to Belfast and this was the first time Bill visited Belfast and it was coming up until his second term of I think he was going for a second term. So he, he was looking for votes. And he knew if things went well in Belfast with the Irish connection to the American Irish things it would would probably do is is standing very well so I moved these stands and took them down to the city hall in in my bin washing van so I basically took these stands down got them set up I was standing there and John was on a sound desk across the road some distance away and there would be a phone an old style phone Uh, there was no mobile phones back then or very few of them shall we say so the phone would ring and I would talk to John and he would say look Peter would you do this would you do that would you move this would you move that round and next thing the phone rang again and there was a gentleman on the other phone said, "Hi, Peter, this is Jerry Whitehouse staff." And I said, hi, Jerry, how are you? And he says, uh, sorry, he didn't say Peter because he didn't know me that. He, he said, hi, this is Jerry Whitehouse. Uh, and I said who I was. And he said, will you be there for the rest of the day? And I said, yes, I would, because I decided this was more exciting than going home and doing bins. i really lost most of the day anyway. So I, I stayed on. And I'd, every now and again, the phone would ring and I'd do a wee bit of work, move a few things about. And the crowd started to gather. I think it was tens of thousands of people turning up. And this stage built about 68 feet off the ground maybe a wee bit taller, and people would start to arrive. And uh, Van Morrison was appearing with Brian Kennedy and a few of the musicians who I'd worked with in the past. Nikki Scott, who was Van Morrison's uh, bass player, and so far over the years, and lots of more people would be turning up. So next thing, Jerry would phone again, and it would be Peter uh, letting you know present hasn't taken off yet. I'll let you know. So basically, what Jerry, the White House staff, was going to do was I wasn't allowed to let Van Morrison on stage until we had clearance that the President Killerton had arrived at the City Hall all the way from Derry and he was flying from helicopter so Jerry from the right House staff would phone me and say Peter the President is in his helicopter he's just taken off from London Derry he'll be here shortly that's fine I was able then to let certain people on stage uh, but Van Morrison wasn't allowed and, had to, and Van would keep coming up and saying I'm sorry Van I can't let you on stage Mr Morrison you have to go back to the room. he was fine with that he was getting a few drinks and things so he didn't mind Joey would phone back to say I'm sorry Peter the president hasn't left yet but That's fine." so I was having to stretch this out and try and keep Van Morrison as happy as I could and eventually yes got to go ahead the president had arrived inside the, uh, the city hall uh, to do his, his introductions his hellos and everything else Van Morrison got on stage and did his section and all the rest of it so that, that was my introduction to Van Morrison having to tell him off every now and again say, I'm sorry you can't get on stage and he was getting a wee bit excited but he wasn't too bad because he was enjoying the crack in the green room but i did have the photograph of my life if i'd had a camera so this is another wee story so i don't think i've, I've told you but um that mr clinton had done the president had done a great speech everything had been very successful and there was a beside my stage down below me on ground level about 68 feet below there was a curtained area which only he was in so behind his stage was left to the left of our stage where he had done his speech so he came through this curtain his wife had come through the curtain first there was nobody in this area at all except his wife and as bill clinton put as his guys pulled the curtain apart he came through there was a moment of about 10 seconds we're only he and his wife were in this small area. And you know, the way when you something is very successful, you maybe raise your hand, fists in the air, and you cringe down with excitement. Well, he did that to his wife. And really, when do you ever see a president break rank and bend down with his fists in the air, clench beside his either side of his face, and go, Yes! Well, he did that. And if I had had a camera or a mobile camera, I, I probably would have had a, a, the one and only photograph where a president is just a disease uh, and it was a lovely moment which only I have experienced but yeah so so yeah I've met I've been involved with the White House staff uh, I've seen Cl- next basically six feet away from Bill Clinton and, and Van Morrison on the one day simply because I said yes to another door that opens.
0: I think static how one door opens and it could be something that you don't know but then later down the road it becomes something spectacular
1: the the excitement i have who would ever imagine that you know well it's it's a story that I, I, i don't tell many people because i don't think about it very often but uh yeah yeah it's it's how many people get that opportunity in life to do that I suppose you have to be open to those opportunities as well. When they come, you have to be prepared to say yes and, and, and take the consequences, you know, you know, because they don't all go well. Those are, I'm relating the ones that have gone well. I've had opportunities where I've messed up, I've had my knuckles wrapped, I've been told off. But then again, I've learned from that as well. You know, all those knuckles wrapped, all those telling offs, um, all those getting it wrong and being embarrassed of having to go and say Peter I'm sorry for that I made a mistake there I'm sorry about that one all those have uh, have taught me great lessons I remember one which was with Peter on tour in Holland and we were staying in a in a forest in, in log cabins and all, everything was on the tour bus so we took our costumes for the, the show that night all the costumes, the props, everything we needed were on the bus and we headed off so my job was to make sure the costumes were on, I also did the washing of the costumes, the ironing, the preparation of the costumes, on this particular tour most tours you'd have a tour, a wardrobe manager, but I was, on this particular tour I was wardrobe, I I was just doing everything because it was a small tour, so uh, the dancers, everybody was on the bus everything sorted, on the bus uh, and then about I suppose about an hour into the journey of a two hour journey maybe, two and a half hour journey to our our show for that night I said, I, I nipped up to the bus driver and quietly said could you pull over please I need to check something so I didn't want to say anything to Peter because obviously he's preparing for his show that night and his wife or his, his now wife his girlfriend at the time was choreographer and was danced from the show as well so the bus driver pulled into the on the side of the motorway and I checked the bus I already knew I didn't have to ask I didn't even need to check I knew I hadn't put the costumes on oh my goodness were we in trouble so I had to go to Peter and say Peter we've made major problem here the costumes for tonight's show aren't on the bus. The bus driver didn't have time to turn and go back. So what we had to do then was the bus driver had to phone a taxi company and and pick me up in an industrial state. I was in Holland. I didn't speak the language. I didn't know where I was. I had my mobile phone, and that was it. I was hoping this taxi driver would pick me up. If he didn't, I was in major trouble, but thank goodness he did. He drove me to the site where our log cabins were I ran like fuck Egypt got the costumes back to the taxi but unbeknownst to me all he was to do was to drop me at the railway station I assumed he was going to take me all the way back to where our show was two and a half hours further on. nope He dropped me at the nearest station. I was to get a train. I got on the train again, not sureing where I was going. Got the train. Uh, Next thing, the train wasn't going to go all the way at this occasion because there was repairs to the line. Thank goodness, a guy overheard me panic at this stage. In my English language, he could hear me panicking, and he said he was going to go all the way to the same place I was. I can't remember. We'll, we'll call it a place called Dune. Can't remember what it was, but he knew the way to Dune, so he then tried to find a, an extension train to get us to Dune. In the meantime, I went and tried to find a taxi. Find a taxi that would take us both to our destination, and you have no idea that journey was the most horrible one ever I have done because I was busy watching the clock. I knew this the show went on at seven. The taxi driver wouldn't speed up because he was at risk of getting caught and the clock just seemed to drag it was horrible I managed to get there on time, costume sorted. I managed to get his ironed and on the show, and the show went ahead. And the one thing that, to this day, brings tears to my eyes is that that journey back cost, I think, 180 euros between the taxi and And, of course, that was my responsibility. I was the one who screwed up. But on to me, every member of, of the party had collected money on the bus. So it makes me, it makes me choke up a bit excuse me, collected money for me to pay for that. So big lesson learned there too, (laughs) to make sure you put the costumes on the bus. (laughs) But a a nice thing to remember,
0: Peter it sounds like the mindset of saying yes is part of that as well and probably that took you time to to learn over all the mistakes and opportunities that were given to you
1: yeah I have a big I have a big philosophy in saying yes you know it, it doesn't always create the right thing for you but if you don't the more you say yes the more opportunities you're going to have and I've just being open to that and, and learning from them I've learned like I've learned so much from those tours I've learned so much about people I've learned so much about caring for other people and i think i've learned that if you care for people they'll care for you like like all those kids in that bus they weren't getting big money but yet they were all prepared to put in their pockets for me now if i had been a nasty guy if i'd been the guy who wouldn't help them or sort things out for them would they have done that for me no, of course they wouldn't. They would have just said, ah, well, that. well, that's Peter's fault. Good luck to him. But like, they're prepared to put their hands in their pockets for me. And I think that comes back to the fact that I work with people. And the more you work with people in anything you do in life, the more you're going to get out of it. It's just, to me, it's common sense. But there there we go back to the things that I've learned through everybody I've met in my life. Learn common sense, learn the practicalities of what you do, learn to be good, and, and those doors will open. But again, being open, I think, to the opportunity. And I think that's what entre- entrepreneurs do. And But like yourself, you're open to the opportunities that come your way. Things, as you say, in your background with your rowing, things haven't always gone the way you want. But it's taken you in a different angle. It's taking you in a different route which if you'd stayed on that path, those other doors wouldn't have opened to you. So if I'd stayed on the path of being an architect and becoming an architect, would I have had 27 years of doing my own bins? No, I wouldn't. Would I have designed, if I hadn't designed the kitchens, you know, would I have done differently? No, because everything I've done through my life has brought me on the path to where I am today. If I had said to no to any one of those things in the past, I would have gone a different route. And maybe I wouldn't have met Bill Clinton. Maybe I wouldn't have met Jerry from the White House staff. Maybe I wouldn't have met Van Mars. Maybe I wouldn't have met those super kids on that bus whose costumes I forgot that day. I wouldn't have met them. And some of them are still friends today. In fact, one of them put up the after-show uh, party we had that night in that hotel. And I remember that as well because that was such a release for me having screwed up so badly with the costumes that it all turned out all right because I was prepared to apply myself and get it sorted. So yes, open yourself to the opportunities because you'll be amazed at where it will take you.
0: Peter, do you feel that you're a genius and what you do is unleashing the true Peter inside you to experience the opportunity and all that's happening outside of you?
1: So did you say genius? Yes. Oh, that's a big word for somebody like me. (laughs) Uh, I would never describe myself as a genius in any way. I am just a person who's prepared to learn uh, and take on opportunity. That is all. I hope I can put people together to other opportunities as well. I, I get great pleasure, and through this network of outstanding people that you and I are both in, I have had the great opportunity of putting people together and and seeing them achieve things which they didn't think they would have done. I met one particular lady who's uh, who's has her own business called Titanic Denim, and all I was doing was reaching out to a friend of mine for another person in this group called called Ann and she was looking for a manufacturer. I didn't know any manufacturers, so I phoned a friend of mine, Dennis, who I've known for many years, but I worked on. I did some extra work on game. Thrones, and I met Dennis again through that because he had worked on making props for Game of Thrones. So I phoned him and I said, "Dennis, would you know any manufacturers who could help me with a friend who's looking for a manufacturer?" He said, "No, but I can put you in touch with Mary who who has Titanic denim." So I got on the phone to Mary, and Mary uh, was was going through. I suppose a patch in her work wondering which direction to go and I said look hang in there we, I, we've a great group of people I'll, I'll get you involved with them I've never met uh, Mary before but she's joined the outstanding group and she has just blossomed because of that now that was a simple phone call I made to a complete unknown person that I know we still contact each other she and Anne have spoken and are doing some work I then found out what she did she made uses recycled denim to make uh, masks for the coronavirus and, and different items. Put her in touch with a friend of mine who has a, a home care store in Lisburn, who just taken on this business as a young lad. He worked in the store, just taking it on, on his own shoulders. Incredible entrepreneur to do that. He now has bought some masks from, from Mary. So it's amazing the connections that can be made just by simply thinking out of the box and just imagining what you can do. It's all there. It's just, so to call myself a genius is certainly not the right name for me. I am just a person who sees the good in people, and maybe I see the good too often, and I, I maybe should. Uh, and as my wife should maybe says, I should say no more often. But it's not in my nature, and probably saying no would probably help me a bit. But it's not for me. I have to say yes and whatever way that takes me i'll go with it but i don't know if genius is any word description of me i'm just a person who likes helping and and by helping it has opened many doors for me and i hope it will continue doors for me
0: peter if someone met you on the street and they asked for you for one piece of advice what would it be
1: one piece of advice be open to opportunity because you just don't know when it's going to come I would always, even even people who are employed, please look for an opportunity. You don't have to stay employed all your life. You know, um, I, I don't think we were all designed to work for forty years in the one job to end up with a pension and go on holiday two weeks a year. I, I think there's more for all of us, uh, and I think we all should be looking for the opportunity of life while well, you're employed, self-employed. There's something out there for everybody. But, and it's a big but, you've got to be open for it. If, if you don't see it, then you're not going to see it. And if you're not open to that door and and maybe going through that door, you'll never know what way it's going to bring you and where it's going to take you. The one thing about going through a door is leave it open. Never close that door behind you. Leave it open because you can always come back through it and then take another door. If that door doesn't take you to where you want to go, come back again and, and take a step back. And, and try another one, but just be open. It's amazing the world out right there for us all. I, I'm 62. I'm looking for the next door. My next thing that I want, I'm, I'm mad about a, a sport. I love my sport. I love trying new things. And next thing I want to take up now is paragliding and uh, parasurfing or, or kitesurfing. So things like that I want to do. And my attitude, as I tell my wife, why should kids have all the fun? I'm still full of fun. I still want to have more fun in my life. Uh, but again, it's, it's, it's trying another door. I suppose my, my ethos through everything I've done, whether it be sport, whether I've been trying something new, is through that door. You just don't know where it's going to take you.
0: If you could give, give advice to your younger self, what would it be?
1: <laughs> oh, dear. I, I've often looked back. I, I think I've looked at other families. And, and, and you know, as you go through life, you see a family out, maybe driving a wealthy car and living in a big house. And, and doing different things and I've, I've thought I often look back and say would I want that would I have been happy to be that child And the answer is no. I'm very proud of where I've come from. I'm very proud that my dad is my dad. I'm very proud that my mother was my mother and that my brother and my sister are who I am. I I am quite proud of where I am today. And I'm proud of where I've come from. I don't think it would change much of it because if I did, if I changed any part of that journey, I wouldn't be who I am today. So I think what I would tell myself is be more confident. I'm still not as confident as I should be. The weird thing is that my confidence stems from, I can do anything sporting. If you say, Peter, have you canoed before? No. I know I can go into a canoe and canoe it. If I could row a boat, no problem. I I taught my, I didn't teach myself, but I learned tightrope walking. Never done that before. Uh, I taught myself to juggle. Anything where, where my body comes into it, I can do it. But you see, if you ask me to take on a new skill where I have to go and sell something to somebody, I find people's nose I take to To heart. Whereas if I'm doing something physical, the only no is me. It doesn't hurt. If I fall, I hurt myself. That's fine. That's not a problem. Not embarrassing. I'm only embarrassing myself. So I think in the early days of going back and seeing me is to accept no's more readily. Don't be frightened of them. A friend once told me is never deny anybody the right to say no. And the sad thing is going back to me at 18, I'd have to say, Peter, accept that more often and you'd be far more successful. Never deny anybody the right to say no, but do it far more often than you did and accept that you're better than you think you are.
0: Peter, what what inspires you or makes you so passionate to be who you are and to do what you do?
1: And go for those doors.
0: (laughs) Excellent. Peter, where can we find you?
1: Oh, where can people find me? Um, My email address is peteraduke at outlook.com. And my mobile number is 771 517 So if there's any uh, people who are involved in uh, cleaning out there, I know there's a few in our outstanding network group, but if they would like to have maybe been, been cleaning or haven't even thought of having been cleaning to what they do, maybe we can sit down and have a chat. Uh, I'm maybe looking to expand my cleaning services into other branches as well. So we can maybe get together and, and do a bit of brainstorming on how we can take the bin, uh, cleaning world by storm. So yes, they can reach me on two, those two ways if that's of help. And I also do a wee bit of network marketing. And if anybody's interested in a second income, give me a shout.
0: Peter, it's been a pleasure having you on the show and thank you so much. It's been a blast.
1: No, I've enjoyed it. Uh, it's, it's quite cathartic uh, looking back on your history and, and seeing where you are and where you've been. So yeah, yeah, I've, I've enjoyed it immensely and thanks for your time. Cool. I'm so Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for
0: 25% off impress manicure and Press On falsies. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus,